This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on a YouTube live stream this week. And of course, when I post this later today, it will be on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well uh, in audio. So uh, welcome, people who, have, uh, who, who came on here live with me. I'm sure that during the course of this podcast, I will respond to some of your comments. But as I mentioned uh, before we got started here, this is not a critical Q&A. Uh, episode. I won't be, you know, interacting with you through the whole thing. I've got some points I want to make um, uh, and some things I want to talk about with the, uh, with the International Cultic Studies Association Conference that I've been attending this week. It has been an amazing experience. I have met some amazing and wonderful and extremely smart people, uh, some of whom I've had on my podcast before and some of whom I've never met before, ex-members of different groups, Scientology and otherwise, who have had some amazing things to say and have given me some interesting enlightenment, I guess I will say. Um, uh, let's see, where to start? All right, well, let me, I took a couple notes here to help me get my thoughts in order, so let me go back to them. All right, so first off, I thought um, that I might cover a little bit of what this conference is that I've been talking about all week and why this is important. Because I realize, of course, that if you've never been involved in a cult or had anything to do with the, with the ex-cult world particularly, or you've only focused in on Scientology, we don't really talk about the International Cultic Studies Association very much. And it's not a group that I've been, I've, I've been aware of them, but I haven't particularly been paying a lot of attention to it or been trying to you know, necessarily be part of it or a card-carrying member or something. So um, so I thought I would just give a little bit of information about that to start with and then um, then proceed from there as far as what, what some of the things that I've learned uh, and, and uh, talked about over the last couple of days. So the International Cultic Studies Association was originally, I think they called it the um, American Family Foundation. And uh, then that changed. It was founded in 1979. Uh, it's a global network. I'm just reading from their website here. It's a global network of people concerned about psychological manipulation and abuse in cultic or high-demand groups, alternative movements, and other environments. ICSA is tax-exempt, supports civil liberties, and is not affiliated with any religious or commercial organizations. And that's actually an important uh, point because a lot of um, anti-cult groups or groups that educate or talk about or inform about cults are religious in nature. And I was actually a little surprised when I first got out and started learning about that. There's a lot of Christian groups who put out anti-cult information, but of course are, you know, promoting a Christian narrative. And there's nothing particularly wrong with that. I think we're, you know, I think we're all allies in this fight. Uh, I just found it interesting, you know. So ICSA is not that. It is, uh, it is more composed of academics, sociologists, psychologists, cult recovery counselors and exit counselors and uh, therapists. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, of academic types like that, uh, people with a lot of letters after their names uh, connected with, uh, with ICSA. And it says here that ICSA uh, is unique in how it brings together former group members, families, helping professionals, and researchers. ICSA's mission is to apply research and professional perspectives to help former members of cultic and other high-control environments. Uh, 
provide guidance and support to families of people involved in high-control environments, educate the public about psychological manipulation and the harmful effects of high-control environments, encourage, support, and conduct research to advance understanding of psychological manipulation in high-control environments. And this is interesting because they're... Um, they have, there's a lot of papers that people have submitted, academic-grade papers and, and some not-so-academic-grade, um, in the ICSA library. And I'll put a link, when I post the podcast, I'll put a link to their website. It's ixahome.com. So you can check that out. And they have a pretty extensive reference library of, of work and stuff. Um, <laughs> somebody commented I should collect some letters after my name. And I'm, there are plans. I'm working on it. Um, there's, uh, you know, this and, and time and various things I want to get done before I get started on that. But, um, but one of the things that I did talk to a couple of people from England about while I was here, I wasn't going to mention this, but since you commented on it, I'll throw it out there. Um, one of the things that I talked to, uh, a couple here about was a pro a master's program that's actually being offered, um, not online. I'd have to go to the UK to do it. But it's a year program um, to get a master's degree in coercive persuasion, uh, which, of course, would be highly interesting and probably pretty useful to me. So um, that's something I'm considering as far as uh, which route am I going to take. Um, I've, I've thought you know, long and hard about this, and I'm still researching it. So we'll see whether that's the master's program I want to go with. There's another one that I'm also uh, looking at that would be an online program, so I'd be able to stay in the States while I do it. So we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, okay, so uh, they say here, educating the public, encouraging support, and support helping professionals interested in this area. So at the conference, um, I came specifically to do two things. Um, I was on a, a panel with, uh, with two other folks, Aaron Smith-Levin and uh, Christy Gordon. Uh, that was done, this, this all happened yesterday. Uh, I did video it. I'm not promising anything yet. I hope to be able to post it this week uh, for my Thursday video, but I haven't even looked at the video yet. And the, the sound, I'm concerned about the sound. I had a microphone up on the table and I videoed the whole thing and I'm sure that the video went fine, but I'm not sure about the sound. So I, gotta, I haven't even had time yet to pull those files and look at them or listen to them. So if they come out okay... Uh, and I'm not gonna. And I know I'm not gonna get too much crap about the sound quality. I'm gonna do what I can to post that panel. Uh, it was really good. We had some great questions, and Christy did amazing. Uh, Aaron was great, and um, you know I, I I don't know how I did. I, I you know I, I, whatever, but but they were great, and um, and I thought that it was it was focused around um, the panel was focused around second generation experience as a as a former Scientologist. And Rachel Bernstein moderated it, and it just, it really was smooth. And there were some really good questions from the audience as well. Um, then I did a presentation about recovering from Scientology. And, um, and that really got me thinking. When I was starting to put that presentation together before I came here, I started looking at and thinking about some things. And, um, and I thought I had some new, new things to say about that. And I'm actually going to share that here in this podcast because... That presentation that I did yesterday, uh, I shared the time slot with another former Scientologist whose name I'm not going to throw out right now because I haven't gotten her permission to do so. But um, 
she was she was really good. Um, anyway, but I shared the slot with her, and then we did some Q and A, and and the video wouldn't have really worked so well for that because it was half me, half her, and it was kind of mixed. And she did her own AV presentation, and that wouldn't have really recorded well. So I, you know, I didn't I didn't try to record that, but I did want to post the thoughts and, and ideas that I had here. So I thought my podcast would be the the best place to do it since it was still all fresh in my mind. Uh, okay. So let's actually start going over some of that. The thing about um, it was that my talk was called Escaping Scientology and Coming to Grips with Your Story. And that was actually a title that I got from Karen Presley because uh, what happened was she was going to do a talk about that. And she invited me to come for the panel, but then she had to bow out of doing her presentation. So I stepped up and, and took it over and I kept the title. I was fascinated by it. And, and when I started thinking about it, um, I, I thought, uh, okay, well, let's, let's see what I can come up with on that. And I said that, you know, in terms of coming to grips with your story, um, you know, for me, that has been a very, very personal thing, uh, obviously, because it's, you know, coming to grips with my story, but there's been a lot of ups and downs, you know, emotionally <laughs> to say the least. Uh, connected with this, as well as, you know, over the last five years, four years, I guess, uh, four or five years, whatever, of of being out of Scientology and all the, the talking I've done about it and the interviews and the work that I've done with this, it's been, um, there's been a lot of shifts in perspective and viewpoints. I've, I've changed my, my mind about or, or, or subtly changed my views in some ways about the about Scientology, about Dianetics, about the efficacy of, of, of the tech, why some of it works, why some of it seems to work, rather, I should say, um, why some people get positive results and others don't. And I've learned a lot about psychology, psychoanalysis, um, you know, various methods and stuff. Still got a lot to learn, tons to learn. But, um, but in learning about that stuff, I've started seeing you know, more than even some of the narratives of others who have come out of Scientology and talk about, uh, people talk about, you know, hypnotic techniques, for example. Um, well, that's true. There absolutely is transinduction in Scientology auditing. Uh, you know, definitely, no question about it. We've talked, I've talked in this channel about um, how uh, Dianetics was in fact originally, you know, a hypnotic technique. And uh, Hubbard was even using uh, hypnosis terminology when he was talking about it. And that's, so that's all true. And yet there's another aspect of it, uh, which is, of course, Hubbard just drew from psychology to, uh, to you know, to, to formalize or, or revise his techniques as he was going along. And there is, you know, that, that, and that's one of the reasons why some people have a positive result with Dianetics is because they are made to go back and look at traumatic episodes in their past that were traumatic and that they weren't up to looking at and didn't want to deal with and hadn't really sorted out for themselves some of the, you know, the cause and effect of what happened to them. And for some people, not everybody, not by a long shot, but for some people, that can help relieve some of the stress and trauma connected with earlier incidents. Now, don't get me wrong, because this isn't an endorsement of Dianetics. It's just a statement of fact that some people have been helped to some degree by that. To, 
make Hubbard's claims true would, I mean, no way, you know, we're not going to cure leukemia with this or cancer or any nonsense like that. We're just talking about relieving some stress. So, um, but it answered questions for me as to, you know, why did some people get results with this and other people don't? And what's that all about? So some of the nuance of it, you know, is what I'm really trying to express here is some of the you know, the, the ability to, uh, yeah, uh, and of course, placebo effect is a factor too, but it's not all of the factor. You know, that's my point. There's all kinds of things. People are complicated. This is probably the biggest thing I've been realizing more and more and more as I learn more and more about this stuff is that people are complicated and there are, everybody is individual. There is no, this is where Hubbard really gets it wrong. This is where all these cults get it wrong. All of them across the boards, they get this totally wrong. That one size fits all. My method is the thing that's going to handle everybody. You know, anyone who comes to me, I can I can deal with them. Bullshit. That's just a bunch of crap. Anybody who makes claims like that, you can just dismiss it out of hand. That you know, when it comes to psychology and dealing with people's uh, dealing with people. You got to take them, you know, every case is, is its own thing. And, and there is no one size fits all methodology of any kind. However, there are treatments that are going to work to varying degrees on different people and different personality types and different people of different backgrounds. And, and so, you know, it's really uh, incumbent on therapists to, to have a wide range of tools in their toolbox and approach each case individually. And that's the exact opposite of what Scientology does. And so that's why Scientology ends up being, you know, so harmful uh, to so many people is because they're having techniques shoved down their throat that are not working on them. And they're told that, you know, well, this is how it is. And uh, and it doesn't if it doesn't work on you, it's your fault. Well, no, that's not right. So basically, my point there being that um, that it's been an interesting somewhat rocky personal road for me over the last few years, figuring some of this stuff out. And it's an ongoing process. There is no, I've got it all figured out now. <laughs> I just want to say right now, if I ever say that, you guys can just turn me off because I will have lost the plot. This is an ongoing process and I think it will be for the rest of my life. Um, and of course, you know, uh, uh, without getting, um, you know, guruish or, or into any kind of thing where I found the answer, I will say that for me, critical thinking was, you know, definitely my savior. And um, it, it kept me, you know, the thing about critical thinking and the reason why I talk about it so much and, and, and I'm so happy to have stumbled on it and learned about logical fallacies and skepticism and the whole rationale of, of thinking critically about things, like really questioning every aspect of things. Um, and trying to be better at that, constantly trying to be better at it, um, is, well, somebody asked me, how do I define critical thinking? I'm, I'm doing that right now. Um, you know, it's not just learning logical fallacies, though. It's learning about basics of logic. It's learning about evidence-based thinking, reasoning. It's, it's thinking about not accepting somebody's um, facts just because they say so, you know, learning to... Um, that, that there is value in authority figures and in people who are educated about things, but avoiding gurus, uh, that, that's kind of important. So, um, 
that's to me that's what critical thinking mostly has entailed and um and i think the principles laid out um in carl sagan's book a demon haunted world uh, i think the subtitle on that is uh, uh science as a as a candle in the darkness of ignorance something like that he had a chapter in there this is what first drew me to critical thinking was the chapter in that book called the baloney detection kit uh, because I was looking for principles and guidelines to help me to not go from one cult to another. And that, if I was going to point to one thing that, uh, if I only had one thing to point to, uh, that would be, that would be it, you know, would be that chapter. There's a lot more. I mean, there's tons more to, to learning about critical thinking, but that would be the thing that I would point to first, because that was the thing that sort of opened up my mind. And that's what worked for me. Maybe that wouldn't work for everybody, but that's that's what I got uh, a big thing out of. And it taught me how to question and analyze things. And questioning is really the important thing. Oh, yeah, and one other thing. The power of I don't know. <laughs> the three most important words in critical thinking. I don't know. Being able to acknowledge that I don't know something and and being comfortable with that mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. Um, because, of course, and I've talked and even made videos about the fact that Scientology, the place where I came from, was all about certainty. Hubbard was just, he'd just go on and on and on about certainty and how you had to be certain and sure of things and how Scientology was the science of certainty. So for me, I came from a place where... Uh, where that was very important, that you have answers. And we thought in Scientology that we did have all the answers to every question anywhere under the sun, moon, and stars. And if I didn't know it yet, it was only because I hadn't gotten high enough up in Scientology's hierarchy to get those answers. And that was the whole point of going up the bridge and paying all the money and doing all the time and working so hard on that. Um, well, I actually learned that it was that was opposite day after I got out of Scientology because uh, surprise, you know, certainty is fine and it's very good to be certain about things, but it can become a trap because if you become so certain of something that you close off or exclude new information or use that as a bias to deny what could be obvious, you know, what should be obvious because you're so certain that your view is the only view that could possibly be true, which is where I was at as a Scientologist, then you close yourself off. You become willfully ignorant. That's no good. So, uh, yeah, somebody just commented uh, that they don't recall Hubbard ever saying, I don't know. Neither do I. Those were three words that I did not hear very often in the world of Scientology. And they were unacceptable words in the Sea Org, by the way. You, you start saying, I don't know, in response to questions or orders you're getting uh, in the Sea Org. And you're going to be, it's not just, okay, well, that's not good. It's to the, to the galley with you, you know. Uh, you're going to be punished for that. So, um, so this was a radical point of view change for me. And that's why I promote it, you know, so much is because as I'm going along in my channel here, I just try to promote what I'm learning. You know, uh, I'm not trying to become a <laughs> become guru myself. So, um, yeah, okay. And now here's the other thing is that, um, you know, it took me a long time to recognize that 
Um, and it shouldn't. It was probably one of the most obvious things about me now that I think about it. I mean, I was a voracious reader as a kid, and I've always been on a quest for knowledge. But I didn't really realize that I have a personality that actually craves answers. I'm just an incredibly curious person. And um, I think I wrote some notes here. Um, and also, I think because of my Scientology upbringing, I, um, I tend to go to extremes when I'm confronted with difficult situations. Um, you know, I had enough self-awareness to know when coming out of Scientology that I didn't want to go from one cult to another. You know, I was ready to give it a break for a while, but I was still hungry for knowledge and for information, you know, and that helped me, you know, the, the decision that I didn't want to go from one cult to another helped me in terms of what not, what I, what not to do, but that didn't really help me so much in terms of what to do. Um, and let me just, uh, well, I've commented, of course, in lots of places about, you know, some of the aspects of Scientology that contribute to making life difficult to coming out of Scientology. There are traps. These are like, you know, these, these mind traps that happen in Scientology. Um, I've mentioned or talked about, you know, the emotional controls and the suppression of your own emotions, how I had, you know, it took me a year and a half or so before it started dawning on me that maybe just possibly I might have issues with expressing my emotions, <laughs> you know, that I might have a little bit of trouble, um, you know, coming to terms with the grief that I was experiencing from all the loss that I'd had when I left Scientology. So that was, um, that was one thing. And that came directly from Scientology because they have this whole thing about how you're not supposed to have any case on post, no case on post, which means you are not supposed to experience any misemotion or you're not supposed to experience negative emotion, grief, fear, apathy, anger, you know, upset. You're not supposed to experience any of that when you're on the job. Well, fine. You know, if you're working at McDonald's, obviously, if somebody comes to order a Big Mac from you, you shouldn't, you know, you don't want to be in a position where you're sitting there crying uh, over some, you know, personal problem. Hi there. Got a couple of cats here at the house that I'm staying at, and they are, uh, I, I don't, I forgot their names. I call them Ghost in Darkness. <laughs> Uh, anyway, one of them is roaming around on the table here. Bye-bye. Uh, okay, so um, so this no case on post thing is kind of a, you know, it's kind of a big deal. And when you get into the C organization, you're 24-7 on the job, literally. I mean, you could be woken up at 2 or 3 in the morning, just randomly. It happened to me, you know, frequently. And, uh, and you're not supposed to be upset, angry, you know, fearful, whatever, uh, you know, especially the griefy part, right? Uh, you're not supposed to have any of that. So you learn to suppress your emotions. And uh, that's not healthy. I learned coming out, this is one of those things I was talking about learning, just how unhealthy that can be. So like I said, it took me a year and a half before it started dawning on me that maybe there was a problem. Um, another aspect, another mental landmine that gets laid in Scientology is um, the, uh, the definition and use of, uh, or abuse, I should say, 
of responsibility. There is nothing wrong with being responsible. People should be responsible for the things they should be responsible for. But in Scientology, like everything else, it's taken to this extreme where you are told flat out that you are responsible for your own condition. Period, end of story, no matter what. And in fact, not just your own condition, you're actually responsible. If you go back to Hubbard's earliest materials on this, you're responsible for everything happening everywhere. And that is nuts. That is absolutely crazy. So that kind of thing is just is is not good with the with the responsibility trap there. Because if you start feeling, I mean, if you kind of think about it for a second, it's pretty obvious why this is a bad thing. If you start feeling like you're responsible for you and you and you and you, not just that you want to help those people, you want to be responsible for assisting them. No, you're responsible for everything that's ever happened to them, right? That's no way. Oh, and then I'm responsible for everything that happens to me too. So there's no such thing as, as victimization. There's no such thing as anybody doing anything to you that's, you know, that that is not your own fault, which is really interesting because it runs, and Hubbard commented on the fact that it runs directly contrary to Dianetics, where he said Dianetics was really popular because everybody got to be a victim. You know, it was all, Dianetics is all about things that happen to you and running out the stress and trauma of what happened to you. But in Scientology, he turned all that around and he said, yeah, no, you're the one who's responsible, really deep down, right, at the lowest fundamental level of your life. You're the one who has pulled in all the bad things that have happened to you and you've only done that because of the bad things you've done. All right, so you can see how pretty quickly that can become, uh, you know, a bit of an issue. Um, okay, so... Uh, yeah, and the, and the third part of that is, of course, that there are no such things as victims. Um, you can't be victimized, really, is sort of the view. Um, and again, because it kind because of, it's it's all goes back to victim blaming in Scientology. So with these kind of mental landmines, I'll say, laid in in Scientology, recovering from that, is a process, man. It's it's some work. Getting, you know, first unlearning some of those things. And then having this kind of like for me and others that I've that I've talked to about this, you know, sort of rehabilitating your ability to experience emotion uh, and that it's okay, you know, and 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 being able to fully experience like grief, you know. When I came out of Scientology, I'd lost my fiance. Now, of course, I, you know, I've made my life good again and I'm married and I'm, I'm happy. Um, but in order to get to where I'm at now, I had to go through this whole process of like, you know, ex- being able to experience the grief of losing all those people that disconnected from me and my former fiance. And I mean, that was a big one, man. That, that really threw me for a loop. In terms of recovery, that's the point I want to get to here. Normal and recovery. Those were two words I took a good hard look at recently, and I'm not even pretending to have this all figured out. I just wanted to share some of the thoughts that I had about them, because I talk a lot on my channel about recovery. I've talked with uh, Rachel and other uh, cult experts and and uh, and recovery counselors about recovery, 
And you start thinking about these terms and what do they really mean? And what, 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 are, what, is, what, what is recovery? What, you know, I've been challenged by other former Scientologists about the concept of recovery and I'm not in recovery and, you know, fine. I'm not trying to foist anything off on anybody. I'm mainly talking about my own experiences and those that I've shared with others who, you know, who had some level of agreement with me. But I'm not trying to imply that everybody had the same experience I did. So for me, you know, I, I wrote some things here. Normal and recovery. You know, these words can themselves be pretty triggering. I mean, they can create, because they, they create these ideas of dependence and, and being damaged or being less than okay. You know, like, what do you mean I'm in recovery? That means I'm not normal. That means there's something really wrong with me. And, you know, and yet at the same time, here's the reality is, you know, coming out of a destructive cult, that you are different from other people. You've had an experience that other people haven't had. Now, the truth is that everybody's different from everybody else. So, you know, good. Um, but you feel victimized. You feel, and, and in many cases, people have been victimized heavily. So you know you've gone through something that's been a pretty intense experience, maybe for years, maybe your entire life. This is especially harsh for second gen members, um, because they never had any other reality or experience than the cult experience. And so acclimating to the real world is in many ways a, a very new thing. A lot of things that, you know, regular folks who never were involved in a cult take for granted, you know, you're 30, you're 40 years old, and you're learning it for the first time. That's, you know, that can be a little bit of a, of a well, it can be a bit of a shock. So, you know, you're, yeah, you've experienced things other people haven't experienced. And you have to deal with the fact that very few people in the big wide world are really going to get it. Not really. I mean, they, they, they're sympathetic, they're compassionate, they're, you know, empathetic toward your experience. And believe me, that is so appreciated. Yet, how do I get across to you guys what three years on the RPF is like? I mean, you know, how do you do that? It's kind of like, how do, you, how do you get across to somebody what it's like to spend a stint in prison? Or how do you get across to somebody what it's like to be in a frame of mind where you would be willing to go kill somebody if you were ordered to do so? I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty deep, dark place to be. And it is very difficult to communicate, you know, get it really fully across to people what that's like. I mean, I've been working on it for a couple of years now, and I feel like I've, I've, in some ways, I feel like I've done a decent job, and in other ways, I feel like I've barely scratched the surface. Um, so, so yeah, so there's a bit of a there's a bit of trouble with getting people to get you, and that can make you feel pretty alienated, and pretty different, and 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 kind of alone. And I think that's why support groups and ex-member groups, even online, are so helpful, but can also in themselves be, you know, troublesome because people are bringing their baggage in with them. And sometimes having, you know, you have people in various stages of this. And so they end up fighting with one another over what the right thing to do is or the right way to think or the right way to be because they're still carrying this cult baggage around that there is a right way to think or do or be. Which, which there isn't, you know, that's the, that's sort of the place I feel like I've 
sort of been coming to is kind of a recognition that everybody's different and it's kind of okay, you know, and I'm not, not to rationalize evil behavior or something, but I'm just talking about regular people, you know, just regular Joes come at things from lots of different backgrounds and education and experience. And, and that should be okay. We should tolerate those differing views and ideas as long as they're not harmful to people. So, you know, so that is that feeling of otherness and, um, and that's difficult to, to get past. Um, you know, and also this responsibility thing, you know, you feel like you're the one to blame for everything that's happened and you learn that's not true, but you can still struggle with drawing a line as to where your responsibility ends and the victimization begins um, and reconciling this with the fact. And here's, here's kind of the harsh reality of this as a former cult member is you, even as a second gen member, you know, there are points along the line where you agreed to continue to be part of the group. You know, you had chances to walk, you had chances to, you know, get out, or maybe you thought you did. Maybe you didn't really ever have any chance to get out, especially the, I mean, especially when you're a kid. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about 12-year-olds here. But as an adult, you look back at your adult periods and you go, man, there were some decisions that I made and I really wish I had made a different decision. For example, for me, for example, I did that interview with my mom. If any of you guys have watched that series that I did with my, where I interviewed my mother, um, great talk. I mean, it was really cathartic for both of us. And we got a lot out on the table. And one of the things that we talked about was an opportunity that I had in 2003 or four or so. When I blew, I took off from the Sea Org for about three or four days. And I just went and crashed in, in a hotel in Pasadena. And I just get myself some sleep and I chilled and I went and saw a movie and I just kind of, you know, gave myself some space because I was, I was in a really really dark place. So um, probably one of the worst places I have ever been in my life in terms of my mental state at that time. So getting out was, was the right thing to do. But then I went back. And, I, you know, I've always looked back at that and thought, man, you know, what a <laughs> really wish I hadn't gone back. Um, I had my reasons. And at the time, I thought they were good reasons. But in reconciling my experience, I've had to look at that and go, well, I have to claim some responsibility for going back. You know, they didn't come and drag me physically back. I called them and said, here I am, come pick me up. And they came and picked me up. So I have to be responsible for having done that, you know? So there's a, there's a, there's sort of a reconciling thing for me of, of figuring that out. And that's, that's for me, that's been part of that recovery process. So I can say, you know, it, it's not a black and white thing, I think, is really the point I'm trying to make. So, um, you know, and also, of course, the fact that there were times when you're involved in a group like this, like Scientology, where not only, you know, not only was it not bad, there were times when it was actually really good, when there were, when you were eager to be part of it, when you felt like, you know, I, there were times I felt like I was truly helping people. I salvaged a couple of marriages. I, I got some people off drugs who wanted to be off drugs. And I, and I helped them out with that. That, you know, that, that's, a, that's a win. That's a good thing. You, you want to help people. And whether it was with or without Scientology, helping people is helping people. So those are the moments that keep you going. Those are the reasons you stay. You know, you can't, you can't be in something for 27 years 
and not have moments like that. So, you know, part of the reconciliation process for me has been looking at those moments too and having to own them uh, as well as owning the bad. You know, we talk about the bad, you know, people get really into some of the salacious details of the bad. Um, I'm really not, you know, into talking about that so much, uh, except to highlight the, the damages and abuses that occur in these groups. Scientology is far from the only group that, that engages in abusive behavior. Um, you know, but we, but, but in, but in terms of my own personal recovery from it, I have to also acknowledge those good things too. And that's, that's been part of the process for me. So let's see here. So basically, coming to terms with all of this and defining normal, I think, is something that every individual has to do for themselves. And, um, and I think that, you know, I, I, I was sort of talking during the presentation yesterday that I had initially, I had this idea coming out of Scientology that normal, <laughs> okay, well, if you guys remember the bridge to total freedom in Scientology, how there's these levels that you attain and each level is supposed to represent a higher state of awareness and ability and spiritual gain. I was still thinking with that paradigm when I first got out of Scientology. And um, cat's up on the table again. Oh, thanks for that little donation. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Um, I was still thinking with this idea that there were that there were mental states of being that you would get to. And so for me, initially, normal was some you know state I was going to achieve. I'm I am now normal, right? And I had to kind of break that down because that's just that's just bullshit, right? And in thinking about this, I thought, well, maybe normal is not a state of being that you achieve where, you know, where nothing's going to throw you off or something, because that's just not happening. I mean, life is what happens when you're making other plans. I, I think that's Oscar Wilde or, or, or somebody said that, right? The, the point being that life is something that is continually changing and evolving, and you never can predict what's going to happen to you from one day to the next whether tragedy or or wins or gains or happiness, you know, I mean, they, they both come in, in different measure to different people at different times. So rather than trying to be at some stable place where, you know, you're always happy or something, which is kind of the idea in Scientology, and it's a totally false idea. Rather than that, maybe maybe the idea of normal or the idea of recovery has to do with, you know, getting to a place where, you are you can kind of cope with stuff that comes at you and you know you can and you and you're in a place where you have some rules for yourself and you have some guidelines for yourself to deal with the with the anxieties and, and craziness of life but they don't come from some guru they come from you because like i said before we're all individual we're all people that have our own views and our personalities and our backgrounds and our education so I don't think that there is a way to come up with, you know, 50 rules that everybody can, uh, can apply, that apply, that every single person in the world should always apply. I don't, I don't know that that's really a thing. I think we have to come up with our own. And I think we have to work at it to figure out what those are. And I think in doing so, we, we, that, I think that kind of is the recovery process. It's, it's one, it's that, and two... It's dealing with what's happened to you in the past so that you're not 
carrying it around with you now. You know, if, if all your attention is on what's happened to you in the past, then what's your present really consist of and what kind of future do you have? You know, not much of one. So you, so you need to deal with it. You know, I've needed to deal with the past uh, in a number of ways. And, um, and I, I, you know, I, I heard something recently, uh, I can't remember from who, that, um, you know, that if, that if your attention is back, backwards, you know, and that you're dwelling on that all the time, that there's probably something unreconciled there and you should go reconcile. You should figure that out. How you do that, I'm not going to tell you how to do it because there's about 50 ways to do it. Um, you know, there's all kinds of processes and procedures and counseling and therapy or self-reflection or maybe, you know, maybe for one person reading a book is all they need. Maybe for another person they need, you know, 100 hours of counseling. I, I can't say. You know, people need to figure that out for themselves in, by, by exploring and looking and reading and, and educating. This is why I will always fall back to education being so important to anyone um, in a recovery process. You know, it's not just something, you know, therapy isn't something that's just done to you. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's, an, it's a very active process. So, um, you know, you're very much involved in. Uh, okay, so... I thought that, you know, oh, yeah, the other important part of that is that in, in formulating those kind of rules or guidelines or practices for yourself, um, I think recovery for ex-cult members is coming to a place where you're comfortable with your own decisions and you're comfortable with your own thoughts and feelings. And you know that you can get advice from other people you know, you can, you're certainly willing to take that, but you're the one who makes your decisions and you're okay with yourself about that. You're okay with being you. Um, because in a cult, you're not you. You know, the whole point of being in a cult is to remold you into being sort of a, a, a reflection of the cult leader. And you give yourself, you give a lot of yourself up when you do that. Um, and so I think, you know, coming out of that and, and getting back to a place that's a, that's a, or getting to a place maybe for the first time in your life where you're the one in charge, you know you're the one in charge and you're comfortable with that. Those are some goals or some ideas that I have about recovery that I think I wanted to elucidate or, or talk about that I thought they might be um, interesting and, and, and helpful for people. So so that, those were the points I wanted to make. And now let's go back here and um, look at some of the uh, comments people have put up here because I've been kind of ignoring them while I've been going on at a mad rate here. And I want to see what, what you guys had to say to some of what I was talking about here. So let's see here. Uh, ta -ta 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 -ta. Is I, can I scroll up in the comments? I'm trying to. Uh, yes, no, maybe. Ah, there we go. Okay, good. All right, let's go back over here to the beginning and see what we got. Listening, good. Um, yes, oh yeah, going back to the academic work. Yes, I should be able to handle the workload. I, I am not at all concerned about dealing with uh, learning new things or doing the academic work. I look forward to it. Um, it's really just getting the time and the money to be able to do it. That's that's the thing that I'm um, working out right now. 
And, uh, and I think these master's programs might be the solution I'm looking for. So that's what I'm putting my attention on. I don't know that that's going to end up with me uh, being a uh, licensed therapist, but it might end up with me getting academic credentials to get into that field so that I can do the research I want to do so that I can help the most number of people that I, that I want to. That's kind of what I'm looking at right now. Uh, all right, so let's see here. Um, thank you very much. There's some really great comments here. Thanks, guys. Um, da, 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 da. Hi from Omaha. Okay, I think I defined critical thinking for unmuzzled there. You said, how do you define critical thinking? Um, da, da, da. Good. All right. Be interested in doing an interview on my channel. Uh, yeah, not Jay Witness. Um, yeah, absolutely. Contact me by email. Uh, my, go to my blog, mncriticalthinking.com, or send me an email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com, and we can get in touch about that. Uh, hey, UK. Hello. Yes. Yeah, really good, really good comments here, guys. Um, I find it, yeah, somebody says here, Katie says, I find it weird that the end goal of Scientology seems to be becoming an emotionless robot. Everyone should be this cookie cutter being that has no individual thoughts or feelings. Right? <laughs> I mean, really, that is sort of the thing. It is, and the thing about that is that when you're in these groups, and specific, I can talk about Scientology, but I can also talk about some of these other groups too. Um, you don't think that that's, what you're, that, that, that's what, what you're becoming. You don't think that that's what's going on. You're in this mindset, in this headspace, where you think you are achieving total spiritual freedom, and you're becoming more you, and you're and you're expressing more of who you really are. When in fact, you're becoming more and more somebody else, you're becoming this cult leader personality, and that's man, I tell you, that is some real. It messes with your head. Oh, I will plug Patreon. Yeah, Robert. Robert Roberts here mentions I have a Patreon account. I do, and um, and it would help me very much uh, to get more support on that. Um, keeps my channel going, keeps me going, and uh, allows me to make trips like this. Because <laughs> uh, I really, I you know, I'm just going to say it, uh, be blunt about that. This was not a cheap trip for me to make. All right, so uh, awesome goals. Thank you. Um, yes. Yes, I agree. Lita Hall says here, I agree that most people have an intrinsic sense of what's right and wrong. It annoys me when the extremely religious imply that without religion, everyone would be a thief and or a murderer. I agree with you on that, Lita. I definitely think that um, that people have intrinsic sets, uh, sense of, of right and wrong. And um, so, okay, so there we go. Uh, I, I, you know, Talked a lot longer than I thought I would about all this, actually. I thought this was going to be a little bit shorter. Um, comments are great. Tomorrow, around this time, I will be doing uh, my critical Q&A for the week. So uh, come back tomorrow, uh, and I'll try to post uh, exactly what time I'll be doing that. I'll throw that up on Twitter and, and YouTube here. Uh, I'm going to try to post this podcast later today. Um, you guys have been great. And... Uh, 
And yes, I am in uh, I'm in a house that uh, I'm uh, sort of an Airbnb type setup. That's where I'm at in Philadelphia right now. So somebody mentioned I'm in someone's kitchen. Well, that's that's the kitchen. This is the dining room. And this was one of the best places to broadcast from. So, okay, guys, thanks very much for coming around and for your comments and feedback. It was wonderful. Um, thanks for listening to what I had to say and expressing interest in it. Um, you guys are you guys are just awesome. I really, really just, I just love you guys to death. And I'm going to go back to the conference now because I have a uh, second gen workshop to attend and some more people to meet and things to do. So today's the last day of the conference. And, uh, and then tomorrow I'll be uh, actually getting a few hours to take a look around and go check out the Liberty Bell and some things here in Philly before I fly back to Denver and get back to real work. So thanks for coming around. I'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye.